The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday morning at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. After Rebecca and I graduated from college, we got married uh, that summer, and then we moved to uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, I started seminary. Rebecca was working on her uh, master's in social work. And uh, we lived in this neighborhood. And across the neighborhood, some friends of ours uh, named Charlie and his wife, Adrian. And Charlie was also going to seminary. And he's now a pastor in uh, South Carolina. And so he was going to seminary at the time. And they were friends of ours. And um, I remember one night, it was about 11, 11.30 in the evening. I was getting ready to bed. I was about getting ready for bed, about to turn in. And I get a phone call, and I see that it's Charlie. And I knew that Charlie was working that night. He was waiting tables. And so I thought, okay, this is weird. He's calling me in the middle of his shift. So I answer the phone. I'm like, hello? And he's like, dude, are you pounding on my front door? And I said, what? No, I'm about to go to bed. He's like, so you're not standing outside of my house pounding on the front door? I'm like, no, what, what are you talking about? What's happening? He says, my wife just called me in a panic Someone, and now he's nervous because he thought I was playing a bad joke. Now he's scared. He's like, someone's pounding on my front door. And then he says, will you go over and check it out? <laughs> I said, can't you just call 911 or something? Like, you want me to go confront the murderer or the serial killer out front of your house? What am I supposed to do? He's like, dude, I don't know who else to call. And then my mentality changed a little bit. Suddenly, I'm realizing I'm his only hope. Okay, like I'm visualizing that scene where Obi-Wan Kenobi gets that message from Princess Leia, okay? Help me, (laughs) Roby-Wan. My only hope, okay? The surge of adrenaline, okay, happens. I realize like I'm like like Frodo and I'm going to save Middle Earth now, okay? So I get on this like sweatshirt. It's got a hood that I pull up over my head, okay? I'm like running through the house and I go into my garage and I'm literally, I'm looking for a weapon, okay? And the only thing I could find was a lacrosse stick, okay? So I get this lacrosse stick and I'm running through the neighborhood. And how I remember it is I'm like leaping fences and like dive rolling through backyards, which probably means I was actually like tripping over sprinkler heads and stuff like that, okay? And I like, and I see, I get to the neighborhood and I see his house and I see parked in his driveway is this car that I've never seen before and it's running. And so like I'm creeping up to this like all tactically, okay? And like I go up next to the car and I'm sliding along the car and then I lean in and I peer into the window, all right? With the most menacing face that I can and I look in and I tap on the window with my lacrosse stick. Now, what I found in the front seat of the car was a poor woman who was trying to visit her sister and got the wrong house and had been knocking on the door for about 15 minutes. And when she saw some creeper (laughs) breathing on her window, wielding a lacrosse stick, okay, she screamed so loud I mean, it must have been for like a solid two minutes just screaming in my face. She lost a decade of her life, no question, okay? She should have just driven right to the hospital, all right? She screamed so loudly, and now I'm so hopped up on adrenaline. I'm looking for something to whack with my lacrosse stick, and uh, luckily the situation was diffused before I injured someone. Um, But that moment, it it just kind of piqued this drive when you realize, okay, it's up to me. 
Okay, it's pat, the, the baton has been passed. It's in my hands. Okay, I, it is all on my shoulders. This is the moment for me to seize. I've got to swoop in and save the day. It was this adrenaline surge. Now, here's what the passage we're going to study does for us. It calls us out just like that. It calls us out. It says there's something, there's a critical situation that is in your life. For many of us, it's in our lives right now. For some of us, it will very shortly be in our lives. Or there's something we can do now to prepare for this moment. There's something that is on our shoulders. It is in our hands. Will we seize the opportunity? Only we can do it the way it's intended. And it's something that sounds so simple. It's something that doesn't sound that dramatic, but it's way even more dramatic than we could describe it. It's the spiritual development of our children. So when we think about that, we're like, okay, how can I get them somewhere where they can be spiritually trained? But the passage we're going to look at says, this is something that is on your shoulders. This is your and my, each, our responsibility. This has to be done. Will we take this baton? Will we seize this opportunity? I want you to look with me at this passage in Ephesians um, we're looking in chapter 6, verse 4. Now, uh, if you have a Bible, maybe you're not really familiar with your Bible, you can go to the beginning. There's a table of contents there, and you can find the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. It's actually, we call it a book. It's actually a letter that was written to a church in the city of Ephesus. So we call it Ephesians. You may have a Bible app. Just go to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. It's also going to be up here on the screens. Let's check it out. Ephesians 6, verse 4, here's what it says. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let me read that again. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, this is a significant section of the Bible. It's a significant section of this book, Ephesians. This, is, this part is all about home life relationships. The first part is about, uh, a couple verses before, is about marriages. It's about the relationship between a husband and a wife. This part here is about children and parents. So it's all about these home life relationships. And this is written to a church. And this is what's so interesting about this passage is when it, it's talking to, to the church, but it places this idea of training up children to know the Lord. It talks about that in the section where it's talking about home life relationships. See, here's what this is meaning. As a church uh, here at our church at West Pines, it is so important that we have very vibrant kids' ministries, very vibrant student ministry. Those are some of our biggest goals that we want to give everything we've got to raise our kids and our students up in a way that knows God. But in the Bible, where it talks about training kids and students is it talks about that happening chiefly not at the church, 
That happens chiefly at home. It's not that it doesn't happen at church. It absolutely happens at church. It's just that the church is only there, can only support and give, and, um, give strength and come along and supplement what's already happening in the home, the chief place that children are to be raised up in the instruction of the Lord is in the context, first and foremost, in the context of the home. That's the front lines. That's the primary push, the primary drive happens in the home. Now you say, okay, I get it. Um, that's not a surprise to hear a preacher say that. It's not a surprise to hear that in church. But here's why, excuse me, that's important to say. Because there's part of how we operate as a culture where that's not instinctual. I want you to think of it like this. When, when you think about your kids or your kids one day or even your grandkids, man, our, our heart for our kids is we want to raise them up to be successful and well-rounded in every single category we can, right? We, we're, we're not just singularly focused. We want them to thrive in every category we can. So we think about their academics, and, how, and we think about their athletics. We think about their extracurriculars. We think about all these. We think about their character. We think about all these categories, and we want to raise them up. And so typically how we see our role as parents is we view our role kind of like a headmaster. We're like the headmaster over our kids' development. And so our goal is to bring in experts in each of these categories, like expert instructors. So let me give you an example. Let's say you just got transferred down here, your job or your spouse's job, you got transferred down here. And you said, all right, um, where are we going to live? You say, well, let's find, we can live anywhere in South Florida, but let's find a, a place that's got really good schools. So you think about having strategic schools, or maybe some say, okay, we, we want to put them in charter school, or we want to put them in private school, or we want to homeschool, we like the curriculum for that, and we want to get them exposed to that kind of curriculum. And so how we think as parents, we think of academics, we think in terms of, okay, we need to bring the right people in their life to train them up academics. We're like the headmaster, bringing the expert instructor in the category of academics. So then we think athletics, and we see that Junior's really good at football, and he's, you know, he's, he's built for football, and he's, he's going to be good at that. So it's like, okay, we want to get him under the right coach and in the right camps and the right other leagues in between school leagues. We want to get him exposed to that right instructor. We're kind of like the headmaster. All right, we're bringing these, these people to do academics, bringing these people to do athletics. And maybe it's our daughter. Well, she's good at music, so we want her to get a, a piano teacher. And we ask our friends, what piano teacher do you use? Do you like them? Or what about this person? I hear about that person. We get that, that right piano teacher. Maybe it's, she's good at dance, so what studio should we put her in? And, and we think through all these extracurriculars, and we bring in these, we're like the headmaster, we bring in these experts to train them up. And sometimes we treat the spiritual part of their life the same way. All right, so, man, well, maybe you say, I, didn't, I went to church growing up. I don't really go to church now, but I went to church growing up. But, man, we started, we, we had a child, then we had a second child, and it just dawned on us one day, man, we want them to get some church. We want them to get some religion. So let's go find a church. We need to come back and just expose them to that. We want them to have that kind of foundation. Or, or maybe you said, all right, you know, we're looking for a church that's got a really good kids' ministry and student ministry because we're hoping that they really impact our students. Now, none of those things are bad. Those are actually great things. Those are good things. But one little nuance. When it comes to the spiritual development of our kids, that's not a section of their life. That's not an elective in their life. That's not one of their activities. Man, that's the foundation of who they are. Think about the most significant relationship 
in their lives. It's not with their parents. It's not with their future spouse. It's with the one who made them. I want you to think about this. If you put them in a sports camp, and there's nothing wrong with that, you put them in a sports camp, they may you know, teach your child how to throw a perfect spiral, and that's good. I mean, putting them in sports, there's a lot of great character and development that can happen there. That's great. But understand how that's different from spirituality. As soon as that football's not in his hand, that technique is no longer valuable. But spiritual development, that affects every other category of their life. It affects every minute of every day. It affects every relationship. It affects how they approach everything. It's something that's at a, a worldview level. It's so framing who they are and how they view this, the world. It's at a worldview level that it's, it can't be done just one hour a week. It's not just one hour you give, you know, give a couple hours, one hour to piano lessons and one hour to spiritual lessons. You can't develop a, a, something that massive of an entire framework on how they view life, a whole worldview in one hour a week. It has to be done in 168 hours a week. I'll think about it like this. I've lately been thinking about how much a child's development is affected by what's intentionally taught by parents versus how much of their development is affected by what's incidentally caught by the kids. How much of a child's development, how they operate, how they handle life, is because parents specifically said this, do this, do this, do this, and how much is just by them observing how their parents operate. Uh, recently, our, our daughter, uh, she's two, she's becoming a lot more verbal, and she's learning words, and we're teaching her words, and her vocabulary is expanding, and so, you know, I'll be pushing her on a swing, you know, and she's in that little, like, safety toddler swing so she doesn't fly off the back, although there was an incident once where that almost happened. But I'm <laughs> pushing her on the swing, and I'll say, I'll say, um, Scarlett, do you see a tree? And she's going back and forth, and she puts her little finger out, and she goes, tree, like that. That's good, that is a tree. And I'll push her and I'll say, what color is the tree? And she'll go, green, like that. She's barely formed, that's great. And so there's these category of words we're intentionally teaching her. There's another category of words that she's picked up by just listening to us. And this is the category that makes me a little nervous, okay? Recently she was just sitting in her high chair and she just said, hey, Roby." What? Hey, Roby. And Rebecca and I look and we started laughing and she sees us laughing and so now she, everyone says, hey, Roby. And she says that over and over. Now, the funny part is she has no idea who or what a Roby is. <laughs> she just thinks it's funny that we laugh whenever she says that. Okay, and I think about this. Okay, along the way, she's got a growing vocabulary. A lot of those words we've said over and over and over to her, but there's a lot of words now that she's learning and phrases that we never taught her. And in the end, when she's leaving our house one day as a, as a young woman, how much of her vocabulary in the end did I actually have to work on with her? And how much did she pick up by observing? Man, so much more will just be what she picked up by going through life. And how much, I want you to think about this. You know, we, we have that phrase, you know, do as I say, not as I. I mean, we say that, but we know that doesn't work, right? They see what we do. Okay, let, let, let's break down. Let me just give you one example of this specifically. I want you to think of a young man. 
I want you to think of his view growing up, his view on women, and how he treats women, sees women, handles women. Is that going to be chiefly shaped by a one-hour lecture in a health class? Or is it going to be shaped by how he watches his father and the other men in his life and how they handle women day after day for weeks and and years and decades? That's what's going to shape him. How he watches how his dad treats his mom and how his dad treats his sisters and how his dad treats other women and how his dad talks about women with other guys and the things his dad watches and looks at. That's what's going to shape primarily his view of women. Could other influences come in and and be a part of that? Yes, but chiefly it's going to be what's caught. See, when it comes to something like a child's spiritual development, it's got to be, it's going to be, so much of it's going to be what's caught in the home. That's why it can't be just simply an hour a week. It's got to be something they're catching in the context of home. The, The front lines for a child's development is in the home. It's the church coming alongside helping, helping what's happening in the home. But there's more in this scripture. It doesn't just simply say, parents, give instruction to your kids. It's actually even more specific than that. It actually puts the focus on a particular parent. It actually calls out one of the parents. Did you notice that? Which parent did it say? It said, fathers... Raise up your children in the instruction of the Lord. Is it a call to both parents? Absolutely. Is the mother's role to spiritually develop a child's life on the mom, is that significant? Absolutely. Is the father supposed to be even chiefly supposed to lead the way? Absolutely. Now the problem is, somewhere in our culture, the spiritual side of the family so often in our culture, that's kind of looked at as like, well, look, if you need help in t-ball, I'll coach your t-ball team, okay? If, if you need to learn how to change the oil in your car, I, I'll show you how to do that. But when it comes to like praying and like singing worship songs, I, let your mom, your mom can talk to you about that or your grandma, someone like that. So often it's looked at for some reason as if the spiritual side of our kids sometimes is viewed as that's effeminate. So that's not really what the men, we focus on these things, and I teach them how to handle their money, and I teach them how to, to, to do this and that. But when it comes to that, you know, kind of spiritual stuff, I mean, it's mom that's, you know, dry, getting us to come to church. And, and that, I mean, that's the one that's really important to you. But you hear who Scripture called out? Dads. First and foremost, it's on us to lead our families. At some point, that began to be seen as something that's effeminate. I mean, let's think about what we're talking about. Do you realize, men, we will stand before God one day? We'll stand before God. And and you know, what the Bible describes as far as standing before God, that's... This is the power that we're standing before. There's a a passage where a man named Isaiah has a vision of standing before God. And he said he stood there. It's just a vision. It wasn't actually reality. He's in the throne room. He said he fell down on the ground, his face buried in the ground. He's a grown man. Why? He's standing before the one, the Bible says, that is holding our molecules together actively, holding our molecules together. He does not have to lift a finger for our molecules to break apart and for us to vaporize. He's holding us together, as the Bible says. 
And so he's realizing he's standing in front of someone with that awesome power who's holding us together. And on top of that, he's standing before someone who's so unbelievably perfect and holy, and he was very aware now of the fact that he is not worthy. He's fallen short. He's sinful. He's not lived his life in worship to this being. So he realizes not only could he cause me to vaporize, he should. And he falls with his face to the ground. And he draws out this other detail. He says, and there were angels on either side of the throne. And they're standing there on either side. They're covering their faces. Why is that so significant? Well, the Bible's description of what happens when a human meets an angel, it's not like a chubby little baby with wings and a bow and arrow floating around. When the Bible describes a, a human being being confronted with an, with an angel. It is terror. In fact, one description is of this unit of Roman soldiers that were commanded to guard Jesus' tomb. Remember Roman soldiers, some of the fiercest warriors in the history of the world? They were trained to stand and withstand an invading army and not move a muscle, from, for, not retreat a muscle, uh, no matter what the invading army was. They were effective all over the world. One angel appeared didn't do anything, didn't wage combat, didn't even make a threat. He just showed up and that entire unit fell down like dead men. And those beings are the ones standing before God covering their faces. Do you realize, talk about a masculine thing to do would be to train our children to have a, a, a fear and a worship and a healthy awe for who their creator is. There could not be anything more masculine than to build that in our sons and to build that into our daughters. Because when one day we stand before that almighty God, you know what he's not going to care about? The one who owns everything. He's not going to care how robust our 401k was or the one who's above everything else. The, that Jesus, the one whose name that everyone bends the knee when they hear his name said one day. He doesn't care what promotion we got, what title we got, what car we drive. We will stand before that being. And you know what he does care about? What he will ask us about? Men? How did you love your wives? Because I commanded you to love them like Jesus loved the church. Lay your life down. Be willing to die for that woman. How have you done that? Question number two, how have you led your children? And in that moment when nothing else matters, it doesn't matter the, the name you left for them, the legacy you left for them, the inheritance you left for them. All of that is irrelevant now that you are facing eternity and all that will matter is did you prepare them for eternity as you stand before God? That is something, men, that should be something we have urgency to lead the way in in our homes. Men, we have, we're built into us when we look at our kids is this instinctual, protective nature, right? You look at your kids and, and there's a very real thing. It's not a joke, man. If someone ever hurt my children, I would have to be physically restrained. That's not a joke. That's real. You have a built-in protective nature. Let that be peaked as you think about the eternal future of your children. That the thing we should be most protective over is not these next 80 years of the lives of our children, but the billions of years they will be in eternity. There could be no more masculine thing, there could be no greater thing that we could think about doing in our families than to lead them to follow after God. This passage is calling us out, men, 
to lead the way. We should be the ones saying, all right, we're going to church this weekend and we're leading the way. We should be the ones saying, hey, let's stop and pray about that. Hey, let's, let's open the Bible and read. Hey, let's, let's do those things, that have those conversations that draw our kids to God. That should be something we are leading the way into. You say, look, I don't have kids yet. That might be even better because you now have time to prepare for that role that he's placing on your shoulders. Ladies, you say, I'm not married to someone yet. Well, you've just been given something, an attribute you want to be looking for in a man that one day will help you raise your kids. This is the call on us as parents. It happens chiefly in the home, and men were called to lead the way. So we hear this passage, and we say, okay, I hear you. Man, I want to do that. Man, I want to lead my kids, but you're going to have to help me with how. All right, I'll take it, I'll do it, but just, you got to give me some tips or give me some instruction. I mean, what do we do? What does that actually look like? I mean, this passage just says do it. It doesn't like give me some steps or give me some know-how. Well, actually, this is a parallel passage to another passage in the Old Testament. It's a passage in the book of Deuteronomy. It's a passage we've mentioned a couple times through this this series. And I want you to hear what this passage says. I'm going to read out of Deuteronomy here. Deuteronomy chapter 6, also verse 4. It's going to be up here on the screens. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. I love this passage. It's a familiar passage and it's a command from God. You say, oh great, another command. Man, you say, oh gosh, the Bible It's just full of all these commands. I can't keep track of all these commands. Well, the good news is this command, when Jesus was asked what's the greatest command, he said not only, he not only said this is the greatest command, he actually says this one encompasses all the others. Essentially, I know that he says, yeah, I know there's a lot of things God wants us to do, but if you did this one thing, you would intuitively be doing all the other ones. He said here, it boils down to this, the entire expectation from God on humanity boils down to this, love God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. Do it with everything you've got. You love God. Do it, and he says, write this on your heart. It's real. You have a passion and an affection for the being of God, not just to get what's God's, but a passion for the being of God. Why do we have such a passion for this being that we'd be so terrified if we appeared right before him? Well, the reason is because, yeah, we don't deserve to stand before him, but you know what he did for us? We fall so far short, but he loves us so much. He said, yes, I I know you deserve to be punished for not living a life of worship as one of my creatures. Because I love you so much, I will sacrifice greatly. And he sent Jesus, the Son of God, he lived a perfect life, unlike us, died on a cross. And what happened on that, that crucifixion, what happened at that death, was a transaction was made between Jesus and God, between the Son and the Father. Where the Son of God, where God looks down at the Son of God and he says, I will let that death count for sinners. You're sinless, so I'll let your death count for sinners, you and me. And God said, so anyone who calls on the name of Jesus and says, yes, let Jesus' death count for me. He says, anyone who says, yes, I received that free gift of Jesus' death, their sins will be washed away. They'll be forgiven permanently. And he says, and then you know for sure you'll live in eternity in heaven with me. 
one day. See, we hear that. It's just, let that stir you up to just love God. You realize what he's done for you. Love him with all you've got every day. It's realizing that he's in your life. He's working those details in your life, all the circumstances he's at work in. And walk through them the way he wants you to walk and you're in a relationship with him, praying, with, praying to him, getting to know him throughout the day. It's, it's a life that reflects worship to God. That's the fundamental command. Now watch what it says next, verse seven. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. Do you see what it says? It says, it says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. Did you see that part? I love how this works because it's like, all right, gosh, all I'm supposed to do is just train up my kids to be godly, but it's broken it down really simple. Here's what we're after. It's not just simply, hey, we want them to have good Christian morals. It's not just simply, hey, we want them to be, you know, no religion. We want them to know how to go to church. We want them to know religious technique. It's not just simply that. It's not, hey, we want them to have integrity. We want them to, to know about Jesus and, and go through a couple of these things. We'd like to see them get baptized. All that's great, but here it tells us specifically what it is. We want to see our kids have a love and a passion and a submission to God. We want to see worshipers happen. That's what we're after. Another thing I love about this is I love that it started by saying, here's what you're supposed to do. Be a worshiper, then teach it to your kids. I love that detail. I don't remember the last time, I don't know if you remember the last time you were in an airplane. And you know when you're about to take off, they have that little presentation, that little safety presentation. And my favorite is when they show that uh, on a video because there are people that are practicing what you're supposed to be doing but what's rather unrealistic about it is that they're all calm and smiling while they're doing this. Okay, you've seen this video before? So there's like a video where there's like a, a um, they say, well, you know, there's these rafts that inflate, you know, if you come to a landing on the water and there's like a simulation where it just lands perfectly right on the water, okay? And then the float goes out and there's these happy people getting onto the float and you're like, look, I've seen that movie where that dude was like in one of those floats for like a month, okay? That was... There were sharks attacking and stuff. That's not a happy picture. And then they show you, this is my favorite part, they show you where the oxygen masks come down, okay? And they say, you know, in the event where the cabin loses pressure, which who knows what that means, okay? In the event the cabin loses pressure, it says oxygen masks will descend from the ceiling. And then you see these people, one dude's just reading the Wall Street Journal, another lady's typing on her laptop, and all of a sudden, boop, they come down from the ceiling, and they look at each other like, oh, good. And they just happily put it on their faces. We're plummeting to the ground. Okay, excellent. Fiery inferno, we're all going to die. Great, okay. And they just happily put on their oxygen masks. No one's screaming. No one's flailing. And they give you these instructions. And it's really actually helpful. They say, if the person next to you is struggling to get their oxygen mask on because they're screaming and flailing, they don't add that part, if the person next to you is struggling to put their oxygen mask on, they tell you what to do first. What do they tell you? Put your own on, okay? Because you're trying to help them. You don't have oxygen. They're flailing around. You can't hold them down and get their oxygen mask on. Then you both pass out, and that doesn't help anyone. You've got to put your oxygen mask on first. Here's what this passage is saying. 
if we know in our homes, probably most of how our children are developed is not even what we're intentionally teaching them. It's not what they're intentionally taught. It's probably even more what's incidentally caught. The first thing we could do is be an actual real worshiper ourselves. If it's real in us and they see that, it's contagious from us and it's real, that might be most of the battle right there. That's real in our lives. They're seeing me as a real, genuine person who's passionate for God. Not a perfect person by any means. We all need the gospel. We're not perfect. We don't pretend to be perfect, but someone who loves God. And if they see that, that might be most of the battle just there. This passage says, "Be love God with all of your heart and your soul and your might. Give it everything you've got and then teach it to your kids. But it doesn't just say, and they'll just accidentally catch on. It says, yes, that's an important priority. It says, diligently teach it to your kids. There is a very proactive part. You say, okay, well, what is that? When do I do it? Is it a book I should read? Is there, are there little events we should celebrate? Is there like a retreat we should go on? Tell me what to do. And this is what the passage says. Let's go back to verse 7 again and look at it. It says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. When? And shall talk of them when you sit down, sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Say, all right, I got it. I'm supposed to be a worshiper to God so that they they see that and influences them but I am supposed to do something diligently. Okay, so Deuteronomy, tell me, what, what do I do? I read a book, we go on a retreat, he says, okay, I got it, it's simple. Deuteronomy tells us, here's what you do. Here's when you talk to them about God. Whenever you're in your house, in a sitting position. Whenever you get up and walk around. If you're walking, that's a good opportunity. Whenever you lie down, if you're lying down at some point, Great time to talk to him about God. When you get up, that's a good time. It says, in fact, write it on your hand so you can show it to him all the time. Get it tattooed on your forehead, okay? Put a sign on your doors. Put it on your gates. Are you getting the drift here? All the time. Every chance you get. Intentionally. Plan the moments. Plan the opportunities. Plan the routines. It says, and then the mo- seize the moments that just happen. Take the opportunities, the discussions that you could turn towards God. Do it. Any chance you get, here's what it's saying. It's more than just an event. It's more than just a thing you do from time to time. It's saying this. Create that as part of the culture of your home. Not just a conversation we remember once. Not just a thing we did once. Something that is intuitively part of their routine as a person. Create a culture in your home. What do you mean by that? Well, can you imagine if your home, your relationship with your kids, can you imagine if there was a culture of prayer? driving home from school, you ask the kids, you know, how school went. One of them says it was fine. Says nothing else for the rest of the afternoon, okay? You ask the other one, what happened? Well, you know, my friend Susie, she wasn't there. She's sick. And what if at that moment you're in the car driving and say, well, let's pray for Susie if she's sick. How should we pray for them? Why don't you pray for them? 
What if someone's stressed out about something and you're at the dinner table, you're talking about something, an issue that's happening, you're stressed, and what if it's just part of your family culture to stop in the moment and pray about it? What if it's part of the culture where you say, okay, whose turn is it to pray? And you're at a meal and someone prays and it's not just the fastest prayer to get to eating possible. Okay, what if it's stopping your praying through things? What if you just take a second and just pray for a couple things that are happening in the family or happening in individuals' lives? What if when you're putting them to bed at night, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your grandkids, what if putting them to bed at night and what if you take that moment, you don't just kiss them and and leave, what if you just take that moment and and you know there's things going on in their little minds? They had a tough day at school, they have a tough time with their friend, they're stressed about something, they had a fight with their sibling and you just take that moment and you just say, and you just teach them to pray through it. What if it's part of their regular expectation that they fall asleep at night casting their burdens to God? Can you think of a better way to train your kids to fall asleep every night? And you just take that quiet moment, you pray through that with them. What if you build a culture where praying like that is spontaneous, praying like that is intuitive, praying like that's not weird, it's just what's expected, it's what they're used to? What if there's a culture of understanding the Bible? What if the culture in, in your family is, is you, you have books when they're babies that you're reading through stories about the, the Bible? What if as they get older you're reading through passages of the scripture at, at breakfast or at, at dinner time? What if, what if I know some families, their kids get older, they're in elementary school and they start, they take a passage like a, maybe a chapter or a psalm and they memorize it through the summer. And there's families that that's just what happened in the summer in their family, those, that's normal for those kids. And you know, like I do, it's amazing what kids can memorize way faster than we can, what they can put to memory. What if we're instilling that in their hearts? It's just part of the culture of our family. There's a, a book that Rebecca and I were reading to Scarlett at, at bedtime. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a phenomenal book for kids. It's got beautiful illustrations and describes all the major stories in the Bible and shows how they point to Jesus as the one who's truly the rescuer of humanity. It's beautiful. We have actually in the Resource Center, you can pick up a copy. Our our kids' ministry uses it. And so we were reading it to Scarlett at night before she went to bed. But the problem was nighttime is not always the best time to get those messages through because there's a little battle going on. And there's an extra story and an extra book, and I don't want that book, and I want water again. I don't want to go to bed yet. And so I realized, okay, this is not a good time, so we started doing it at the breakfast table. And reading it through, we wanted that to be part of the culture of our family, that those stories, understanding who Jesus is, is second nature. What if there's a culture of listening and singing worship? It's not uncommon to hear that in the home. What if a culture of fellowship, it's instinctual, natural to be around Christians at church. It'd be weird not to go to church. What if those things are part of the culture of the home because this is first and foremost the front lines of how our children are going to be developed as worshipers of God. It's got to be first and foremost in the home. Now maybe you say, look, I didn't have that growing up and, I'm st- and I made it. Well, praise God that he can enter in and work around that natural system. Praise God that he can work where we're deficient and where we fail Praise God that he loves our children even more than we do. But this is the way God has planned for it to happen. The front lines of our child's spiritual development has to be in the home. Now we've talked about a lot of things here. Let me just review these and a couple just basic points. If you're a note taker, these would be great things to write down. Let's just go through these. What have we discussed? How do we develop our kids spiritually? Here's the first one. Know who. Who is it? 
Is it, do I, okay, I, I want to find a good church. That's great. You want a church that's going to have a great kids ministry, great student ministry. You want those things in a church. But first and foremost, the front lines, who is it? It's you. It's ultimately on your shoulders and my shoulders, men. It's ultimately, chiefly, we should be leading the way in these discussions. The first thing we've got to know is know who. It's you. Here's the second thing. What do we got to know? The second thing we got to know, know what? Are we training our kids to just be moral, to know about church, to have know a lot of details about the Bible? No. What are we wanting of our kids? We're, wanting, we're inspiring worshipers. We're wanting them to know and love God with all that they've got. That's what we're after. Know how. How do we do this? It's the next question. Know how. Okay, that's a lot. So what do I do? Well, there's a simple paradigm we can think about how. Know that it's this. It's caught even more than taught. Yes, we teach it diligently. But know this. It's going to be just caught. So the, half the battle is first and foremost being a real genuine worshiper of God yourself. Put the oxygen mask on yourself and be a real worshiper and they will see that. It'll be caught even more than taught. The next one, and know when. Is this something I should do like a certain time of the week or when should I do it? What's, what's the program? Think in terms of this. Craft a family culture. Events are good, moments are good, routines are good, but even more than that, make it the culture, the fabric of your home, the, the natural discussions that happen in your home. But there's one more question that we should address. Know why. Why is this so important? Because it's the eternity of our kids. This is their eternal future. This is their relationship with their creator. What could be more important than this? Some of you today, it's time to say, you know what? No matter what stage my kids are in, I I need to turn a corner and I need to dig in now and make this happen. Some of you say, look, my kids are out the door, but you know what? Every time my grandkids are in my home, this is the culture they're going to feel. Some of you are saying, look, I'm not even uh, married yet or we don't have kids. Well, this is perfect time for you to become that worshiper and start thinking and finding that person who's going to partner with you to spiritually develop your kids. You know what to look for in a spouse. You know what to become to be that spouse one day. To make the decision to say, I want to spearhead this effort in my home. It's first and foremost on my shoulders. For some of you, maybe the first step is you've got to put the oxygen mask on yourself today. Maybe some of you say, look, if I'm honest, I'd like to do that, but I feel so far from God. I'm not close to God at all. I need your help. What do I do? What's my first step? It's very simple. That gospel message, that message of love, that we don't deserve God's love. Actually, we only deserve his punishment But he loves us so much despite all that. He sent Jesus to pay the ultimate price. He sacrificed everything to pay for our sins. The first step is this morning, just simply receive that gift of salvation. Just simply say to God, I accept Jesus. Jesus' death counts in my place. He's my substitute. I accept that. And God says, okay, his death is applied to you. You are washed clean permanently. You're forgiven. And you'll have eternity in heaven one day, secured. Maybe this morning you want to receive that as your first step. Is that you? You can receive that right now. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes?
that's you right there in this moment, just have a quiet moment between you and God and just accept what He's done to save you. I want you to say this prayer to God just between you and God in your heart. Make this your prayer. God, thank you for loving me even though I'm unlovable. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for me. Thank you for forgiving my sins. I want to follow after you and live a life of worship with everything I've got. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.